0: Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. In this episode we speak to Paul Wood, a Fall 2015 Joan Shorenstein Fellow and BBC World Affairs Correspondent, about his new research paper, The Pen and the Sword – Reporting ISIS. The paper, which you can read at shorensteincenter.org, tells the harrowing story of a journalist held hostage by ISIS and examines the ethical dilemmas that arise when reporting on terrorist organisations. In this conversation, recorded in December 2015, Paul discusses some of the background behind his paper and introduces some of the themes. We begin with Paul explaining why he chose to write about this topic during his time at the Shorenstein Centre.
1: I've been covering Syria for the past three and a half, four years, and towards the end of that period, The story of Syria was increasing the story of ISIS. Um, One of the things I did during that time was to meet a lot of families of the Western and British hostages who were kidnapped and killed, and some of the hostages who were ransomed out, the French, the Danes, the Spanish. Um, I started writing about that just because it was such a compelling story, but a lot of ethical um, and moral dilemmas started coming up, the kind of things we were facing in our coverage. To do with covering Syria in general and wars in general, and in particular covering ISIS. You hope as a journalist that you're just um, telling stories which are true, that's the first question you ask yourself, is the story accurate? But then you make a lot of small compromises, necessary compromises, in dealing with a group like ISIS. For instance, um, we knew uh, that Kayla Muller, who was eventually killed, was kidnapped by ISIS, but her family had been told as all the hostages had been told by ISIS not to have any publicity. So we didn't do a story. News eventually leaked in the US. Obviously, when lives are in the balance, a phrase such as the journalist's duty to truth is a pretty hollow one. But nevertheless, we made that small compromise. There were many other small compromises uh, and some big ones. When ISIS started killing people and putting out propaganda videos, for reasons of taste and decency, we didn't show people getting their heads cut off. But we were also aware that These images were propaganda images, and we didn't want to be used. ISIS were beheading people, so we would show them beheading people. So it's a sliding scale. You start off saying, I'm not a propagandist, I'm a journalist. You make all these small compromises. um, And then you end up thinking about the effect of your story, which is what a propagandist does, uh, rather than a journalist. So all these kind of questions come out when you tell the story of reporting on ISIS. So the paper is about what happened to the hostages, which is a gripping and awful story and some thoughts about the problems we faced, the ethical and moral dilemmas, and covering it.
0: Paul then discussed some of the challenges of writing the paper.
1: Interviewing is both quite a simple thing and a complex thing. Um, The best question for an interviewer is just what happened. I'd rather not impose uh, my assumptions on an interview, often um, things which you just never would have expected happened, and if you load your question with your impression then people don't tell you those things. the process of interviewing all the former hostages and the families was quite a long one. I spent a whole week with one former hostage because these people were held for a year or two years and they, there was a lot of detail to get through and I just wanted to get the whole story. Then, of course, you have the problem of writing. I think Ernest Hemingway said, writing is easy, you just sit at your typewriter and bleed. I find it very, very difficult. Just The problems of making a narrative work is quite a difficult Rubik's Cube-type problem to solve. Um, and then the big problem was... Um, I thought my attitude towards these ethical problems was quite simple, quite straightforward, but I found myself getting in quite a tangle with the argument because at the end of the day, these are not easy problems to solve. And in the fellows' lunches we have with the faculty here, at some point they said, look, just stop trying to solve these problems, (laughs) just state them because you can't solve them.
0: We asked Paul what he hoped readers would take away from his work at the Shorenstein Centre.
1: It's not a didactic paper. It's not saying, look, this is how you cover wars or this is how you cover ISIS. First of all, um, it's a very strong human story of one particular hostage who's in there and some of the other hostages who, was, who were in with him. Uh, I'm, I'm quite in favour of journalism. that's just like a clear lens. It just tells you what happens and um, people can take away what lessons they want. Uh, I think any journalist who's covered conflict will recognise some of the dilemmas in the paper, and I think that's probably enough for me.
0: Paul shared some of his thoughts on the safety of journalists reporting in conflict zones and how ISIS views foreign correspondence.
1: We've been here before in this question of journalists no longer being seen as neutral, being seen as parties to the conflict. One of the first wars that I covered was Bosnia. And then I was a young green freelancer who got a lift from somebody into the war zone, didn't know what I was doing, was looked after by some more experienced journalists. But then you were hearing about checkpoints stopping journalists, especially Serb checkpoints. I did a lot of coverage on the Serb side and you you were seen as an advocate for Western intervention against the Serbs and um, you couldn't say or you tried to say, look I'm here as a neutral journalist just covering this war, just trying to tell a truthful story. So it's not the first time that um, people have had these kind of questions. I, with Geoffrey Goldberg, tell anybody not to go to rebel-held Syria anymore um, and especially anywhere where you might encounter ISIS. I think the problem is so much worse. ISIS has a strategic objective to kidnap people and there is so much uh, visceral anger on the part of especially young foreign jihadis. If ISIS takes you, um, even if you get out as the Europeans did, you're going to endure really quite horrific torture. And in uh, the interviews I did with some of the former hostages, uh, there's This group of uh, jailers, whom they called the Beatles, three British jailers. They called them the Beatles, so if they were overheard talking about them, it wouldn't be obvious and they wouldn't be punished. The Beatles used to come into the cell, make everybody kneel facing the wall, palms flat on the wall. And then they'd walk up and down having this sort of awful Socratic dialogue where they talk about religion or politics um, or what they saw as a Western war against Muslims hostages would be forced to take part in these dialogues and of course a wrong answer or a truthful answer would mean you get a beating or a punishment and people would hear weapons being cocked behind their ears there'd be a knife held to the throat and very quickly in those dialogues the hostages told me it emerged that ISIS simply and these jailers, these beatles, simply didn't recognise the idea that you'd come as a journalist, as a neutral person to try to cover the conflict as truthfully as you could we would come as an aid worker at the invitation of Muslims who were suffering to help them they thought journalists were part of an information war. They thought aid workers were part of an imperialist effort by the West to put a footprint in Muslim lands. From their point of view, nobody was neutral in this conflict. And that's what you get from talking to the hostages. And that's what any young freelancer going into, uh, into Syria should expect to encounter if they get taken by ISIS. And the problem is that for a couple of years now, kidnapping's been endemic, both the foreigners and any Syrian who goes in. Even if ISIS don't kidnap you, there's a huge market for kidnapping because ISIS will pay money, millions of dollars for people who are kidnapped. Other groups like Nusra um, have been paid, in the case of two young Italian aid workers, $12 million by the Italian government. These things mean that you really can't trust anybody. And people have been fighting a war on their own. They think they've been betrayed by the West, who said yes, Assad should go at the beginning, then nothing happened. So they feel angry and bitter, and you just don't have any support. You have nobody watching your back. That's not a situation that you can really operate safely in.
0: Finally, here's a clip from a panel discussion with the Fall 2015 Joan Steen Fellows, recorded in November 2015, just after the terrorist attacks in Paris. Paul spoke about some of the reaction to the attacks, and six common myths he frequently sees in media commentary on ISIS and terrorism.
1: Um, Ever since Paris, I've taken to flipping over my laptop as soon as I wake up and reading all the commentary. So if you remember your Alice in Wonderland, it's a bit like the Red Queen. I find myself believing six impossible things before breakfast. Uh, These impossible things are drawn from left and right and from all sides of the debate about what to do about ISIS. But here are the six things, most impossible things. (coughs) One, this is a clash of civilizations. No, it isn't. There are a billion and a half Muslims in the world and most of them don't want to kill us. Uh, I was talking to a Muslim friend of mine yesterday who said he can no longer turn on the radio or television. He feels like I guess a Japanese citizen would have done just before they were all interned here in the Second World War. He feels under siege. This is a small victory for ISIS. ISIS are a minority within a minority. Second impossible thing, this is an existential struggle. This is almost too ridiculous uh, to bother dealing with but I've heard it three or four times including from people running for president. Uh, This was terrorism. Terrorism is asymmetrical warfare. Terrorism is what you do when you cannot invade and conquer a country. The fact that it is terrorism is a sign of ISIS's weakness, and that it is not an uh, uh, existential struggle. Um, It's quite interesting to me that the French have got a three-month state of emergency, which gives the government the power to um, arrest you without a warrant, um, put you under (coughs) house arrest without judicial procedure, tap your phone without a warrant, this would be a lot easier uh, for a French president to do than for a British Prime Minister or an American president, but I think the danger is in overreacting. Um, three, ISIS is not Islamic. Uh, yes, it is, I'm afraid. Um, it may be a narrow and some would say perverted view of Islam, but they know their Koran. Uh, even if you take some of the most abhorrent practices of ISIS, such as sex slavery, they have Quranic authority for it. I was a couple of months ago in northern Iraq interviewing a young woman, 16 years old, who'd been sold as a sex slave to a 60-year-old man. Um, He took her home and handcuffed her, uh, took her clothes off, took his clothes off. And she was begging him, saying, you're old enough to be my father. Think of me as a daughter. Please don't touch me. And he said, this is my religion. This is in the Quran. And I will get credit with God for doing this. And then he raped her. Fourth point, fourth in impossible thing to believe. Assad was right all along. A lot of people are saying we backed the wrong side in the civil war. I want you to put yourself for just five minutes in, in the shoes of Syrian. Uh, Two hundred thousand people have died in the Syrian civil war. Ninety-five percent of them, with the civilians anyway, have been killed by barrel bombing and other things uh, in contravention of the laws of war carried out by the regime. It's also the case that the Assad regime has a long, long history of working with or manipulating Islamist fanatics. They did it in the Iraq war. And at the beginning of the uprising, in a very calculated move, Assad released many of the most hardline Islamists from his jails. He did that to get the enemy he wants, which is an enemy which would shore up his support among the Alawites and others. ISIS is partly the creation of the Assad regime. Uh, Fifth thing, it's Obama's fault for leaving Iraq. Not quite. ISIS, or its forerunner, the Islamic State in Iraq, had pretty much been defeated when American troops left. Uh, Their leaders had been killed. Abu Bakr Bakhtadi is only the leader of ISIS today because um, the then leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq was taken out by the Iraqis working in concert with American special forces. What revived uh, the Islamic State, ISIS, was the Syrian civil war. And you can argue that we should have intervened earlier in the Syrian civil war. I think there's a case to be made on both sides. Number six, we can bomb them back into the Stone Age. Killing some Arabs, as somebody said to me yesterday, may make us feel good. It is certainly a political necessity for President Hollande, but it is ineffective and it is counterproductive. One example of how ineffective it is, in January, there was a massive airstrike on al-Bab, which is one of the main centers of ISIS. Uh, I'm sure that to American military planners, what they were bombing looked like a barracks. There were soldiers outside, there were armed men going in and out. It turned out to be the prison in al-Bab, and most of the 90 bodies pulled from the rubble would therefore have been opponents of ISIS. Uh, It's counterproductive, uh, because ISIS in Iraq and Syria is a coalition of foreign fighters who've come in in a semi-colonial relationship with the Sunni tribes who have sworn allegiance to them for a variety of reasons to do with self-protection, to do with being bribed. If you want to defeat ISIS you have to break off the Sunni tribes from the foreign fighters and bombing them in their homes is not the way to do that. Uh, People may disagree with my mini-analysis on those six points but I throw them out there for debate.
0: You can read Paul Wood's full paper at shorensteincenter.org. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by extrememusic.com.